Hello, everyone. My name is Ian Rowe. And I'm Nike Fajors. And welcome to The Invisible Men, where we make the achievements of incredible men invisible no more. Hello, and welcome to the latest episode of The Invisible Men. My name is Ian Rowe. I'm a resident fellow at the American Enterprise Institute. Hello, I'm Nike Fajors, a member of the Leadership Network at AEI. And uh, Nike, great to see you. As our, as our viewers know, we uh, have the Invisible Men as a way to demystify Black excellence by introducing our viewers to folks that you may have heard of, but more likely haven't. And we love to have people on who just led exceptional lives, building their families, their businesses, uh, and just doing, making great contributions to our society, and yet often are not in the uh, general dialogue or narrative, particularly as it relates to Black men. And today we're very pleased to have Barry Lawson Williams with us, who is a fellow Harvard Business School alum, which is uh, fantastic. So Barry, great to see you. Thank you. Looking forward to yep. sharing some thoughts today. Yeah, and, and Barry uh, joins us. He's a retired business executive, a great career in finance and investment, and was on the board of, was it 14 uh, different corporate boards, Barry? Is that right? 14 public company boards, yes. That is extraordinary. Well, we'll definitely have to talk about that because that's an area that, again, most people don't even know is a pathway to really learn about how companies operate, how you can uh, generate revenue. But before we even step into where you are today, talk a little bit about uh, your early days uh, when you were coming up the ranks and the challenges that you faced and how you were able to uh, overcome them in those early days. Well, it's hard to think of myself as an invisible man because I'm 6'6 and 300 pounds. <laughs> uh, and uh, I am most noted. The only way you've heard about me is that uh, I held an NCAA record for close to 30 years. And that is I played college basketball at Harvard and I guarded Bill Bradley when Bill established the Princeton scoring record. He couldn't have done it without me. So that's, that's my claim to athletic fame. I guarded him when he established the record. Now, uh, I grew up in, a, in an interesting family in that uh, both of my parents went to uh, college and actually uh, both went to some graduate school. Uh, in my father's case, that meant he took his accounting uh, degree and worked for the U.S. Post Office. And my mother uh, took her teaching degree from Hunter College in New York and became a teacher. I was one of three boys growing up in the uh, suburbs of New York. And I always say we were the Jeffersons because my family was from the Bronx in Harlem. And we... <laughs> Moved up to Montverde. You moved on up. You moved, moved on up. <laughs> you look a little bit like Sherman. Moving up the line. <laughs> but uh, I've got to tell you, it, it's easy to describe my childhood uh, because I never had a chance. And the reason I say that is my mother was a teacher and I went to her school for a while. Uh, and uh, there never was an issue 
about whether I did my homework or whether I fooled around in class. It just wasn't allowed. But uh, my mother actually uh, did something growing up that uh, I didn't realize uh, until I, till I grew up. And that is my mother was a remedial reading teacher. Hmm. Uh, and she always would have these uh, kids who had reading issues, what have you, come by the house for tutoring. Uh, and my mother seemed to be totally disorganized. And she would say to my brothers and I, while I'm helping this person, could you help uh, this other person? And I, I couldn't figure out why my mother was so disorganized. And this was her way of making sure that we did our homework, that we were prepared, <laughs> and we were able to teach others. So, um, but I uh, grew up and uh, I made a big decision in my life. Uh, in that is my parents got divorced when I was 13. Uh, I didn't want to take sides. So I decided to go away to school. And then I went away to private school for high school. And that was a feeder uh, for the Ivy Leagues. Uh, and the end of that story is I wound up going to Harvard College taking a year off on a fellowship and then going in the joint program at Harvard Law and Harvard Business School. So uh, spent a lot of time at Harvard. You know, Ian and, I, Ian and I were talking prior to this conversation that I personally have known several African-American men who did the Harvard College, Harvard Law School, Harvard Business School uh, trifecta. And I don't think it was coincidence. And I, I, I sort of asked the question, I, I doubt you fell into those remarkable opportunities, but were you proactive in pursuing this, you know, Harvard education across three schools or how, how did that play out? Well, Harvard College, you know, obviously I knew it was a good school but my family on my father's side was from Boston, and I, I loved Boston. Uh, and on weekends, I would go to my grandmother's house and have smothered pork chops <laughs> while people were having scrambled eggs in the dormitory or something like that. So <laughs> it was easy to choose Harvard as an undergraduate. For grad school, uh, you know, despite a good education and educated parents, I hadn't been exposed to a lot of role models. I didn't know anybody in business and all the professions. And so the options for my generation were you became a teacher, a doctor, or a lawyer. And I chose the lawyer part. And since I like Boston, I just decided to stay there. Uh, I was in the first class that did the joint program. Oh. Uh, so I was in law school and that, that just meant I said, spend another year, but understood. But I, but I, I tell you, when I went to Harvard Law School, I thought because I met somebody uh, that I wanted to be an international lawyer. I didn't even know what that is, and I still don't. Uh, and I've never been. Uh, and the only reason I went to business school was I thought I could be a better corporate lawyer. And as it turned out, uh, I did spend some time in law, 
but I like the business side better. And I think law made me a better business executive rather than business school made me a better lawyer. Understood. Yeah. And so it sounds like from a young age, I mean, sorry to hear that your parents got divorced, but at age 13, you went away and then to Harvard. How did you deal in those early years? And and were issues of race even relevant uh, to you at that time? Because it sounds like you were you struck out on a, a, a yeah, at an early age of being independent in pursuing your career. Um. I wanted to make some of my own decisions. That's why I decided to go away. And uh, I did go away to one of those New England prep schools uh, where there was like one black person in each class. Uh, uh, There were so few of us that people didn't fuss over us. Now, the advantage I had was I was an athlete, and that was a device that people were attracted to you because they were, you played on the teams and what have you, but uh, uh, it was lonely, <laughs> no doubt about it. And I, I went to the first large class at Harvard for African-Americans. And that meant there were, I think, 32 men and six women uh, out of a class of, uh, if you combine Harvard and Radcliffe, that'd be a class of like 1800. So uh, again, the advantage I had is I knew friends who were attending school in the Boston area and I had family. So I had more of a support group in college than most people. And and that helped a lot. But, But I made a critical decision my sophomore year at, at Harvard. And I said, I'm going to make, myself. I'm not going to lead two lives. You know, my freshman year, Friday night, I was running over to BU and hanging out with my friends. And I said, sophomore year, I'm going to be black and at Harvard at the same time. And I'm going to make Harvard black too, okay. or at least having to deal with my blackness. And, what did, uh, and how did that play out? What did that mean to you? Well, I started doing more things on campus. Uh, I I missed a lot of my friends, but I got to be better friends with the blacks on campus. Uh, And, you know, we started the early roots of of an African-American association. Yeah, that's fascinating because I think Ian and I both know folks that, you know, when you're in that lonely position, sometimes you abandon your core. You abandon your identity to simply blend in. And, and, and hopefully be more accepted. But I think your, your brave decision to, in fact, embrace yourself, be yourself, and, and help pull the campus along to, to, to recognize and support you, that's a, that's, a, that's a powerful step you took as a very young man. Well, I think you cannot be afraid to make some difficult steps in your life. That's very important. You've got to be you, and and, uh, you got to have a path to get what you want. And Barry, it seems like now fast-forwarding to this stage of your career, it sounds like you've been quite a support 
person now yourself for a number of Black executives uh, as they've tried to navigate their careers. And you mentioned that you uh, interviewed 50 seasoned Black corporate directors about their experiences. Were there any common themes that you think would be of interest to our to our audience in terms of what they had to go through to kind of illuminate if others are interested? Well, the reason I did the study was that I was retiring from boards, and I told you I served on 14. And, you know, like five years ago, I started thinking about what were the chances that I would be replaced on these boards by an African-American. And at that time, I was on five boards. And my best guess was two and, and only two. And the number turned out to be two and only two. I tried equally as hard in all situations. But do you, do you in most cases, I didn't have the critical factor, which was the support of the CEO. In uh, the other cases, even when people embrace diversity, they looked to a very broad definition of diversity and took women or other types of people and then specifically fo focus on blacks. As for the study, uh, I have it on my website. I encourage people to look up BarryLawsonWilliams.com. Uh, and there were five major findings. Uh, the study came out in February before George Floyd. So the most impressive finding needs to be updated. And, and that finding was that most of the black seasoned black directors that I interviewed were only cautiously optimistic about increased black representation on corporate boards in the next five years. They thought again, that there were many factors, but one of them was, was this much broader definition of diversity. And there were also the lack of uh, uh, rotation on boards. Uh, people get on and stay forever. Yeah. Uh, and then there were competing skill sets all going for that one or so seat that came up. Obviously, with the George Floyd and related incidents, there's been a much greater call for uh, specifically black representation on corporate boards. But again, we've got so far to go. Uh, you know, I, I just was looking at a study that said, uh, I believe there were roughly 60 women and roughly 50 diverse men who were uh, recruited for major corporate boards in the fourth quarter of uh, 2020. Well, you know, we're talking about the Fortune 500, the S&P 500, the Russell 2000, plus we're talking about private companies. So as happy as I am that we have 50 new appointments, uh, it's, it's just a drop in the bucket of where we have to go. So we got a long way to go. Do you think the issue is an issue of discrimination? Do you think the, it's an issue of pipeline issue? What, what's, what's holding more corporations back from 
inviting uh, more racially diverse folks onto their directorships? Well, you, you're touching on the second major finding of the uh, 50 black directors that I interviewed. Uh, they had been on uh, 274 boards seats. And over eight. So on, a, so on average, each of them was on at least five different boards. In their career. Not all were on five at one time, more yeah, three still. at a time, but right. five, five in their career. And 80% said they got on boards not because of race, although race was obviously a helpful factor, but 80% said they got on boards uh, through relationships. Now you got to have a good, you got to have the required skill set, but the facts of life, no one is going to get on a corporate board unless someone knows that person and can vouch for them. So they didn't get on through search firms predominantly or what have you, they got on through relationships. And that is the major factor. People have a tendency to use their own Rolodex. So the majority of board searches are done around the table by existing board members and their friends are their friends. They are not diverse people. And until we get a system, uh, a vehicle where more of my friends are their friends, uh, it's not gonna happen. There's also the perception that there's a lack of supply and we're just blowing that right now out of the woodwork. Uh, a group of directors, not simply the ones I interviewed, but other fellows uh, on the East Coast, we're working together to identify aspiring black talent. And we're approaching 500 names, where for each name, we have an experienced black director who will vouch for that person. And we don't have all the people who are capable. We just have the people that someone we know can, who's been in the boardroom can vouch that that person could be successful, effective in a corporate board setting. So, uh, you know, if I were doing my one, two, three, I'd say one is we've got to get into the inventory of, of, of existing corporate boards by developing relationships, much like the relationships that enable us to get on boards. Uh, two, we have to make people aware of the source of aspiring uh, candidates. And I am working hard to identify and get support for the numerous platforms that are developing candidate lists, specifically of black candidates. There are 17 that I've identified, and I'm sure there are more. And then the third thing we have to do is increase board size or somehow increase board rotation because on a corporate board, on average, less than one seat comes up every year. Excellent, excellent. So helpful. You know, Barry, as I can think- I, Can I just mention one other because uh, you asked me the major findings and there were five, and I will just briefly say some of the others that, that you would find interesting is uh, seasoned black directors like myself found there was a lack of access to the boards uh, backed by VC and private equity firms. 
So that's a whole other area, the private companies. Uh, they also felt uh, there were public companies in technology that uh, limited access because they placed too much emphasis in our minds on domain knowledge and not on the other broader skills that make somebody effective in a boardroom. And, and finally, they mentioned even consumer products, which is surprising because you would think consumer product companies would want to know uh, different 